One of the books that I wrote called We the Students, that book got banned in Texas. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Massachusetts. The same week that I learned that my book was banned down there, I, uh, Vladimir Putin banned me for life from ever entering Russia. I, I, I made some good enemies uh, that week, I suppose. Since 2017, Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin has been representing Maryland's 8th Congressional District. The co-leader of the Free Thought Caucus on the Hill, he's a member of the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, as well as of the Judiciary and Oversight and Reform Committees, among others. In an age where Congress continues to be dominated by Christian identities and worldviews, Congressman Raskin is unusually representative of where much of the nation is heading, belief-wise. We'll lean into that perspective as we look forward to the 2024 election cycle. This is about equality. This is about equal access. Um, and so that's that's why this legislation is, is so critical. Earlier this month, a group of legislators from both houses reintroduced the Freedom to Vote Act, which includes strong provisions to expand voter access and counter attempts to undermine our electoral system. Interfaith Alliance Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy, Darcy Hirsch, will be back to discuss why this is an issue for the interfaith agenda. We're very proud of the show we're putting together for you week after week. To get these important conversations in front of more people who need to hear them, we've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation podcast I want to make sure you are subscribed to please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping to get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland is co-chair of the Congressional Free Thought Caucus and served as lead impeachment manager for Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. He's also an outspoken proponent of respect for Americans of diverse belief and faith systems, and I'm delighted to have him with us today. Congressman, welcome to State of Belief. Great to see you, Paul. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I, I'm thrilled. Let me start by saying thank you for your service to the country, to all the ways that you have shown up, stood up, spoken up about how government can work for all the people and also how decency can still prevail in government. So I want to start out just thanking you for all the ways you have shown up and become like an exemplar for uh, government in America. So, so thank you. And I want to start by giving you an opportunity to tell me and my listeners about the Free Thought Caucus, because it's it's something that is so intriguing to me. And I know you were involved, and I think, in the founding of it. So what is the Free Thought Caucus in Congress, and what uh, need is it filling? Well, uh, we created it back in 2018. My friend Jared Huffman from California and I... Um, just decided it was getting um, a little bit too um, 
you know, uh, theologically uh, obsessed and Christian nationalist in the country and in government, and that um, the basic understandings of uh, the First Amendment, of the founders, of the separation of church and state were being lost. And so we wanted to uh, stand up for the Enlightenment tradition in American politics. Well, it seems absolutely necessary. But what's interesting to me is if you look at the people who are involved, it's people from different faith traditions, different backgrounds. Some may identify as secular or humanist. Others have other traditions, including Muslims, Christians, and yourself as a person of Jewish heritage. How does your own tradition, your background, factor into Free Thought Caucus and into your own sense of what governance is? Well, yeah, I mean, we were emphatic from the beginning, Paul, that there be no sectarian dogma of any kind, of any particular religious faith or no religious faith. We wanted it to be open to anybody who identified basically with Tom Paine and Thomas Jefferson and Frederick Douglass and the, the you know, Susan B. Anthony, the people who fought for a progressive, pro-democracy, pro-freedom tradition in American life and understood um, the ways in which um, uh, sectarian authoritarianism were a threat to free thinking and free people. Exactly. I mean, that's, I think it's so important that this does not have to be, to to want to create uh, appropriate boundaries between government and religion does not mean you're anti-religion. It means that you're actually trying to get both to thrive in their own way, but not to let religion become too much involved with the um, with the machinations and to use the power of the state to impose a vision on the rest of the people. I think that that's what we're seeing with Christian nationalism, well, which is so dangerous. I mean, the, the way that I think of it is that um, we need a strict separation of church and state, which was what Jefferson advocated in his letter to the Danbury Baptists, where he came up with the metaphor of the wall of separation. Um, But we don't have a separation of religion and politics because um, religion, like other systems of belief and values, can come to inform how people feel about things and what they believe in and what they want politics to accomplish. So there's no separation there. But when it comes to the government, um, the government cannot endorse and advance religious dogmas and impose them on the people. And um, I think that the best understanding of our First Amendment is that we have no establishment of religion and we have free exercise of religion and they support the same value because you can't have free exercise of religion and freedom of thought, freedom to choose your own religion and worship as you please or not to have any religion and not worship. If one group is able to capture state power and impose uh, religious tests and religious dogma on everybody else. And so the anti-establishment principle and the free exercise principle stand best when they stand together. That's what creates real freedom of religious choice and freedom of thought. Have you had success with the Free Thought Caucus reaching out to people who often bring religion into their politics and to invite them into conversation saying, let's have a real conversation about the way 
politics and religion can work together, but not exactly as you say, not impose a um, religion upon the state. Have you had any success with that? I mean, I had a very interesting um, uh, conversation with a conservative Republican uh, friend who's, you know, describes himself as um, a fundamentalist, born again, I suppose. Um, And, you know, and I made this distinction between church and state separation versus religion and politics, where people can freely interweave the two if they like. Um, And he said, well, you didn't have any problem with Dr. King being involved in politics because you liked his politics. And I I said, I don't have any problem with anybody exercising their First Amendment rights and being involved in politics. But understand this, Dr. King's agenda politically was never to impose prayer in the schools or to take government money and give it to churches or to um, violate the separation of church and state. His political agenda was civil rights and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and reducing the military-industrial complex and investing in um, social development and education and so on. So what motivated him to get there was undoubtedly a profound um spirituality and religious faith and understanding of what it meant for him to be Christian, no doubt. Um, and that's all to the good. I mean, you know, I, I, I tremble to think where American politics would be without the influence of the black church. Right. In fact, there's an interesting book by Susan Jacoby about this, where she describes the way that social and political progress in America have depended upon Um, a strong political coalition among progressive religionists from every faith tradition and non-believers. And the civil rights movement is a great example of that. I mean, you know, you had uh, Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was basically black ministers from all over the country who became the bulwark and the heart of the nationwide civil rights movement. And SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which were a lot of young people who were not, uh, you know, religiously organized, and many of them were free thinkers, and um, you know, didn't adhere to a particular uh, church doctrine. But together, it was the combination of the free thinkers and the secular reformers with the progressive religionists that made the civil rights movement happen. Including Rabbi Heschel and and many, many others uh, who showed up in that way. When I'm thinking of uh, freedom of thought right now and free thought caucus and other ways that we need to be uh, maintain our freedom of thought, I my mind goes to book bans. My mind goes to ways that people are intentionally trying to limit the the kind of information that we can receive. Talk to me about you know we're we're Interfaith Alliance is very involved in the in the struggle to to say actually book bans are against religious freedom because they're against the freedom to believe what you want to believe and to learn what you want to learn. I'm. How do you how do you understand um, in your own framework the the efforts to to ban books and, and curtail uh, education in the way that is being done in in states like um, 
Florida, states like Texas? Well, um, one of the books that I wrote called We the Students, which is about all the Supreme Court cases that affect young people in school, like locker searches and drug testing and censorship of yearbooks and newspapers and school prayer. That book got banned in Texas um, in um, a number of counties and by the Texas State School Board. Uh, and um, the irony is that it was sponsored by the Supreme Court Historical Society. Um, so um, uh, I've thought a lot about this book ban thing. By the way, the, the same week that I learned that my book was banned down there, I uh, Vladimir Putin banned me for life from ever entering Russia because of my pro-Ukrainian activities. So um, I, I made some good enemies uh, that week, I suppose. But um, look, book banning has been a central fixture, fixture in authoritarian politics and fascist movements forever. Book banning, book burning, attacks on books, attacks on education. I mean, there, you know, you've got to view the ban on books in the attempt to uh, stop critical uh, race theory, by which they mean any teaching of the actual history of the country uh, with respect to racism and white supremacy. Um, all of these are efforts basically to, to condition the children of America, the young people of America, um, to get ready for being subjects in an authoritarian society. I mean, schooling people for authoritarianism wow. is what they're really doing. So um, I see it, you know, in explicitly political terms, it's part of a right wing agenda, um, you know, to uh, undercut voting rights, to roll back civil rights, to attack libraries, librarians, right. books, right. Uh, educators, um, to wreck the public schools as much as they can. Ugh. And um you know, they've got a wrecking ball agenda. I mean, what, you know, I go to work with these people every day. Um, they don't come saying, well, what are we going to do to strengthen American communities this week? What are we going to do to improve public health? Now they come in and they say, well, how are we going to trash trans children this week? Or how are we going to, um, you know, attack the Biden family with conspiracy theories and so on. Like that's the agenda. Oh, it, it is very, very frustrating. And you, you know, you often speak up and you name it. And we certainly appreciate it. Those of us who hope for a government that will actually deal with the, the problems that are pressing uh, our people. You've personally dealt with a lot of difficult things over the last um, decade. And, you know, I think, in some ways, the way you've been open about um, the loss of your son, the, your own um, health, it's also allowed people to feel like, okay, a public person like that can be forthright, can, be, can offer wisdom and pain. And I, I, I know that's not like your primary job as a congressman and as a, as a leader, but I do want to just, you know, say, commend you for it and, and wondering like, for you personally, like leaning into your Jewish tradition or, or what, what gives you strength given what you've had to go through? Well, you know, I derive strength from wherever I can find it. Um, undoubtedly, um, you know, our synagogue, our rabbi, our congregation, you know, have been 
extremely supportive and encouraging. Um, and that's true also of lots of other people's churches and synagogues and mosques and and people completely outside of any particular religious community. I mean, you know, one of the criticisms I have of uh, some of the, you know, critics of religion in America is that they don't understand that lots of people are organized in religious communities and religious life. It's not, you know, they look at, um, you know, scary religious cults like the Church of Scientology or like what we saw with the right wing um, Christian nationalists on January 6th or, you know, there's a really interesting documentary I saw recently called Shiny Happy People about uh, an authoritarian Christian cult um, that pulled the wool over a lot of people's eyes. But, um, you know, it's a mistake to characterize all religion in that way, because it, not all religions are like that. Not all religions are built on child abuse and terrifying and horrifying people. And there are lots of secular you know, organizations that do operate on those principles. So, um, you know, to my mind, I think an American pragmatic approach to this is you take you take institutions um, as they come to you and you judge them by virtue of what their real world consequences are in the, you know, in life. And um, so there are wonderful churches and wonderful synagogues and uh, church groups, just like there's some that are have been taken over and driven into, um, you know, despair uh, by virtue of who their leaders were. So, um, you know, but in an existential sense, um, I've derived a, a lot of strength from my family, of course, and my friends and my constituents. And, um, you know, I, I wrote a book about Tommy and about the times we we came through ever since we lost him on the last day of December in 2020. Um, and um, so the writing has been somewhat, you know, cathartic for me um, to try to understand best that I can everything that happened with Tommy and everything that's happened in America with January 6th and COVID-19 and impeachment and everything. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I mean, I I know, you know, there's a, a poem by the Spanish poet Makata where he says, Walker, there's no path, the, the path must be created by walking, you know, and so there's not one way to get through a catastrophe mm. like that, um, or any of the, you know, traumas of our time. Um, and so you know, we do our best. But for me, politics has been an important part of it because I feel like I'm able to channel uh, a lot of the emotion and angst of these times into some constructive action. Absolutely. Thank you for that answer. We'll take another break now and be back with more of this conversation with Representative Jamie Raskin. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.
Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guest is U.S. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Talk to me a little bit about how you understand January 6th, but then where we are now. And are you surprised that <laughs> January 6th now has become a rallying cry for um, candidate Donald Trump? Like he's literally leaning into what happened that day. We're seeing inevitably. But- I, I kind of predicted that at the impeachment trial, where I tried to get his lawyers to commit that not only were they not saying anything positive about the riots and the insurrection during the trial, but that they would never, and Trump would never come to embrace it. And of course, you know, they, they didn't commit to do that. It, it just seemed absolutely inevitable to me um, that Trump was going to end up trying to lionize and um, canonize um, the people who attacked our officers and stormed the Capitol and tried to overthrow our election. And, you know, the history of who's all over the world um, is that if you don't soundly defeat the political coup makers and if there's no reckoning in the justice system, they will come back again. And the the biggest indicator of a successful coup is a recently failed coup where the coup perpetrators are able to diagnose the weaknesses in the existing system and also what mistakes they made. Um, So, um, you know, there will be an effort by Donald Trump and his party, which is now operating like an authoritarian religious cult, um, to take the presidency back by any means necessary. We've already seen that they've been willing to use violence. We've already seen they've been willing to use voter suppression. Um, and uh, attempts to corrupt the counting of votes and electoral administration. And so we have to be prepared for each and every one of those things. Exactly. I mean, and, and as you've seen, I, I'm sure you, you know, we are extremely um, aware and vigilant around Christian nationalism, which is, has it, all the polling shows of Christian nationalists, they view violence as an acceptable means of power acquisition. That they, in the face of what they view as the loss of power, they are will. They say in poll after poll that they're willing to use violence, and so the underpinning of Christian nationalism to January six, I think, you know, has been underexplored, perhaps, or you know, many of us have talked about it a lot, but I think you know there we we I think many of us truly believe that that is one of the motivators uh, and also one of the sustaining things that allows it to continue to have um, power among a certain um, and diminishing part of American population, but for that fact of diminishing, wanting to keep a hold of power no matter what and by, by using any sort of force necessary. That's right. And Donald Trump has... Um a, an expanding and proliferating control over this shrinking part of the American population, but it's becoming ever better organized and mobilized under him. So it's going to be a race between the democratic will of the pro-freedom majority in America versus the bag of tricks that they have, the gerrymandering of state and federal districts, the voter suppression tactics, right-wing judicial activism, corporate dark money, 
propaganda, uh, disinformation, and so on. I would add to that terrorism. I mean, all across the country, we are seeing them using the threat of violence in order to suppress, you know, voters, but also like, you know, we, we, in, in Southwest Florida, we had a, we had a interfaith alliance, um, organizer and member who, um, was a, was a rabbi who spoke up against Christian nationalism and was followed to his car. And, and, you know, you have this sense of like threat and I, I just want to, you know, I just, I find this, you know, this unacceptable, um, road that they are traveling down and we just have to, you know, I think you've named it very well. It's this race. And I do think we have to really, uh, take it seriously. A quick, if you can comment about the judiciary, you may or may not know that Louis Brandes was my great grandfather and I grew up venerating the court. I mean, my father was a law professor. You know, I, I was very like, yeah. Oh, the law, it's the highest. You know, I literally, the first time someone said that the law was like, you know, not a weapon for good. I was just like, really? You know, all the lawyers I know are like really out there trying to fight the good fight. But right now I, I don't want to sound naive, but like, I really view the, the court is not going to, is not going to save us. You know I mean? Like we, I, the court is not going to protect, I'm, you know, a gay man with uh, two children there. I don't believe the court is going to protect me, you know? And so, you know, to say that the court is not going to save us might be the uh, the understatement of the month, Paul. I mean, uh, <laughs> talk, talk really, to me. <laughs> well, look. Let, let me let me start this way because I'm I'm burdened with some actual knowledge of the subject since I was a professor of constitutional law for a quarter century. For the vast majority of American history, the Supreme Court has been a profoundly conservative or reactionary institution. That you know, your your grandfather. Uh, it was really a, a noble and extraordinary exception, as was the Warren Court. But think about the entire first century of the country. Um, what did the Supreme Court do for the most vulnerable and downtrodden and um, violated people in the country for enslaved Africans? Nothing other than... Um, in uh, 1857, in the Dred Scott Dred decision, Scott, yeah, constitutionalized their slavery and their disempowerment. Say, you know, an African American could not be a citizen within the meaning of the diversity jurisdiction clause, such that a an African could assert that he had been made free by being taken into free territory. And then the court struck down the Missouri Compromise. Um, yeah, and, it's, it really um, is actually, once you get into the history, you're a thousand percent right. And, and people also even like, even after the civil war, even after the reconstruction amendments, so you get to 1896 with Plessy versus Ferguson and the court guts equal protection and says, no, you have to interpret equal protection through the prism of the customs and traditions and usages of the people. In other words, use the racism and the Jim Crow apartheid that grew up after the Civil War to define equal protection. And as long as it's consistent with the social mores and customs, then it doesn't violate equal protection. So that system lasted up until Bob Moses and the Civil Rights Movement went south in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and up until the war in court, which was this extraordinary exception and departure from what the court, you know, had had been like and you know it, which isn't to say that there you know were not great noble justices every once in a while came along like Brandeis who was absolutely a phenomenon but 
Um, it was during that period that we got the white primary line of cases. We got Brown versus Board. We got, um, you know, uh, Miranda uh, versus Arizona. Roe versus Wade comes um, soon thereafter. But there was, you know, a two or three decade period where the Supreme Court was aligned with the rights and freedoms of the people. And then right back to the old baseline with the Burger Court, the Rehnquist Court, the Roberts Court. And now today, I mean, they, you know, they've just blown the, the doors off of the uh, hinges, right? I mean, uh, Citizens United, uh, yeah, corporations have the constitutional uh, political rights of the people. Yeah, of course they do. Every corporate treasury in America transformed into a political uh, slush fund, uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. I mean, and, and the the reasoning in these decisions is just pathetic. I mean, the, the most recent one that blew my mind was um, the, the case about the woman who says, well, I might have a business that might have a website where I might serve um, wedding couples. And this guy told me that he wanted me to uh, make a website for his wedding with his gay partner. It turns out the guy is straight, has been married for 15 years, but they take that case, they, they violate everything they've ever said about needing an actual case or controversy. There's no standing because nobody's been injured, and they render what is basically an advisory opinion. I mean, it was like a law, a bad law school hypothetical. It, well, an example. And, uh, yeah. and this is what passes for constitutional law today. No, I mean, it also, like, you know, it's very convenient not to have actually a couple who is whose life is upended by this. But now we're going to have right. couples whose lives are upended on this. And, you know, the, the real life application is that, you know, I have to be I, I'd have no idea if I'm going into an artist or a photographer who might want to do a portrait of my family, if they can just say no. That would that would that would be endorsing. I mean, it's really. I just think the idea of the of the, of the, the law as a force for unraveling society, as opposed to creating co cohesion and and more yeah. um, um, almost obligation to one another. As even though we may disagree, obligation to be with one another. And this is this is what they're saying is basically we have no obligation. Well, this issue, this precise issue, was resolved by the Supreme Court uh, back in. Uh, you know, the heart of Atlanta Motel case and Ollie's Barbecue, where the court upheld civil rights laws and against precisely attacks by hotel and motel and lunch counter owners who said, I've got a First Amendment right, either a religious free liberty right or a religious or a free association right not to associate with, uh, you know, interracial couples or interfaith couples or couples that I don't approve of. And if you're a place of public accommodation, if you're a hotel, motel, or restaurant, you can't say that. You're open to the public. That's the authority of the state to decide. So if you've got a First Amendment right to say, oh, you're violating my creative rights by making me, you know, decorate a cake by putting, you know, the name of, um, you know, gay wedding partners on it, you can do that for interracial couples. You can do sure. that for interfaith couples. Sure. I mean, you know, and then we've just undone all of civil rights laws. Exactly. Exactly. Listen, you, you, you have so much flying at you 
all day, literally, because you're in the you're in the pit. It really looks like that sometimes. You like look at the Congress. You're like, okay, like where are the lions and where? I mean, this is like a mess, a mess. And people, you know, I I I, I hate to name names, but for Marjorie Taylor Greene to talk about decorum is the most crazy thing in the world. I mean, it's just it, it really is. It's troubling deeply. So you're surrounded by this. I I like to ask people who are in the midst of it what gives them hope. And I'd like to ask you that. What gives you hope as we face this moment in our democracy, as well, you, you know, let me all just of say it. one thing about that decorum issue, because yesterday, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to project up on the screen during her five minutes of questioning um, pornographic images that she asserted were from Hunter Biden's laptop. Although since we've never been given the putative hard drive to Hunter Biden's laptop. We have no idea what we saw other than these pornographic images of people having sex in different ways. Um, I mean, that doesn't violate the rules of decorum of the House, and we don't have rules of decorum in the House. There was nothing relevant about it. It wasn't like we were having a hearing about pornography or human trafficking or something where you could conjure up some reason that would justify it. They were making a claim about how there was political interference in the tax prosecution charging decisions. I mean, it's completely irrelevant. I mean, you, you cannot torture out any kind of connection. So it was purely sensationalistic and voyeuristic. Of course, if it had been in a book, she would have voted to ban it. Well, and not to mention, it's like they, they talk about, you know, pornography and, you know, very quick to throw grooming things and, and you know, all these, these yeah. you know, they're, they're very quick to point out. Um, and then and then they do that in a public setting. I mean, it was really yeah. it was absolutely yeah. unbelievable. But let me let me tell you this. I mean, I'm finding reasons for hope all over the place. I mean, I'm finding reasons for hope in all of the great young people out there who are beyond the lunacy, the conspiracy theory, the paranoia, the racism, the anti-Semitism, the homophobia, the immigrant bashing. They uh, also, alas, are a little bit beyond grammar, too, but we're working with them on that. Um, but it's a marvelous young generation, and I derive a lot of hope from prior generations of Americans who overcame odds worse than we face to defeat forces of right-wing authoritarianism and racism. And, you know, were able to face their burnout or their own stress and anxiety in a way such that they could uh, move forward. And we can derive a lot of inspiration from uh, them. And, you know, my, my dad used to say to us when we were growing up, when everything looks hopeless, you're the hope. Oof. So I, I'm finding hope in, um, you know, the values I was raised with, and I find hope in the people that I meet every day who are rejecting the lunacy. And I do believe, I hope this doesn't sound too partisan for your totally nonpartisan broadcast, but I do believe that in the final analysis, it's going to be a showdown between the party of democracy, the Democrats, and what used to be Lincoln's party, a party of freedom and anti-slavery and anti-know-nothingism that has become an authoritarian cult of personality, that cult of personality will be a collection of cults. You got to check out this documentary, Shiny Happy People, and you see what the social basis is for the Republican Party today. It's really wounded, injured people who are in cultish-type political or religious organizations. I mean, that that's like the heart of who gathered on January 6th when Donald Trump 
hauled them all together. And the ones who fortunately were not part of that are waking up. I mean, there's this uh, a wonderful woman who was a 69-year-old grandmother who got caught up in it um, and um, got arrested. She spent two months in jail. Uh, and uh, Trump sent out a social message about her, about Mrs. Hemphill, um, talking about how horrific it was. And she sent out a message saying, I pled guilty because I was guilty and I was brainwashed and I was part of the cult of Trump and I will never be part of it again and I will never allow you to brainwash me again. So there are people every day who are breaking out of not just the Republican Party, but breaking out of the, the Donald Trump cult. And some of them are remaining Republicans and some of them are saying, I'm sorry that the party is under the spell of Trump. I can't be part of it anymore. I'm going to be an independent or I'll be a Democrat or I'll figure out where I'm going. So um, the the dynamics are on our side. I am convinced of it, and I'm going to be traveling um, in the country to raise money for Democrats, to build a strong uh, House Democratic majority, and to uh, defend the White House and to get uh, Joe Biden reelected. Uh, this is our political mandate and imperative. And this could be the election where the Republican Party just implodes uh, because they have surrendered critical thinking skills. Mm. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin has been representing Maryland's 8th Congressional District since 2017. He previously served nine years in the Maryland State Senate. Congressman Raskin, thank you so much for being on The State of Belief and for all you are doing. And uh, we just really appreciate your voice and your vision. I appreciate that so much. Reverend Rauschenbusch, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun, and um, keep up the great work. We've got to take one more break, but up next, voting rights as an interfaith issue. I'll talk with Interfaith Alliance Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy, Darcy Hirsch. You're listening to State of Belief, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Recently, Interfaith Alliance announced support for proposed legislation from U.S. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock of Georgia. And I am happy to welcome Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance, Darcy Hirsch, back to State of Belief. Darcy, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here again. Yeah. So what is this bill? I'm so excited that we're signed on to, to support this bill because it feels so aligned with our work in democracy. Tell us what's, what this bill is and, and what it proposes. Sure. So this is the Freedom to Vote Act, which is a historic legislative package that would really improve access to the ballot for all Americans. It would advance common sense federal election standards and campaign finance reforms and essentially protect our democracy. Um, the, you know, the timing for the introduction of, of this package is so critical. It is so urgent. Just last month, we had the 10-year anniversary of the Supreme Court ruling of Shelby County versus Holder, which gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965 by eliminating critical anti-discrimination protections. And with the 2024 election on everybody's minds, the timing is really now to work towards creating an inclusive democracy and ensuring that every vote has a voice. 
for me, this feels so aligned with Interfaith Alliance's work on, you know, freedom of religion and democracy being hand in hand. And like, you know, we, we, I think the, the quote that many of us turn to is Representative John Lewis when he said the right to vote is almost sacred because it's an expression of our deepest commitments within uh, our democracy, how we're going to live together. So, so talk to me a little bit about how you understand, you know, how this fits in with an organization that really tries to blend religious freedom, civil rights, and democracy um, preservation and building democracy. Well, the right to vote is is the cornerstone of democracy. Our, our country is built upon each citizen being able to determine who who is in power. This is, this is about power. And when we're thinking about civil rights, when we're thinking about LGBTQ equality, when we're thinking about support for our public schools, fighting discrimination against all kinds, supporting separation of, of religion and state, um, it's really our, our voice at the ballot box that ensures that our leadership is ensuring the civil rights of, of all. And it is the obligation of, of the faith community to guarantee these rights and speak out and say that, that our faith believes that inequality in humanity and in full civic participation. And so I think that, you know, our engagement in the 2024 election, um, mobilizing, advocating, ensuring election protection, election integrity is really critical to the work that, that we do at Interfaith Alliance and protecting our democracy. So what is the timeline here? Is this, you know, what, what can our listeners do? Because I think one of the important things here is that um, this is a, a bill that has been introduced. And so it is an opportunity for our listeners to actually reach out to their senators and say, this feels important. Can you um, let us know your stance on this, how you understand it, and how we can support it? That's absolutely right. This this is such an opportunity for our listeners to reach out to their representatives, to their senators, and to say either thank you for endorsing this legislation. It was it was endorsed uh, by I believe the entire Democratic Caucus, um, and it's significantly been lifted up by leadership to say thank you for supporting this. How can I partner with you to move it forward? And if your senator or your representative didn't support it, to reach out and and say this is important to me I, as as a as a citizen, as a someone who that lives in your in your district, um, I urge you to sponsor this to sponsor this legislation. And so we're you know we're still in the beginnings of the 118th Congress, um, and so the there is time to build support and potentially move this legislative package forward. Um, the other thing is that there are separate pieces of of this legislative package that have um, been introduced. So there's the Democracy Restoration Act, which is included in this package, um, but also uh, is a standalone bill. So if you care about uh, restoring the rights of, of those who've served their, their criminal sentence but have not yet been allowed to, to vote, you can reach out and say, please, please support this part of the legislation. And Senator Warnock is actually introducing this week another piece of the bill called the Preventing Election Subversion Act. So you can certainly reach out to your legislators and ask them to, to support different pieces of the, of the package as well and, and articulate which parts are most important to you. Although, of course, at Interfaith Alliance, uh, we support all of it, and, and we believe that it would ensure um, secure access to the vote for, for all. 
What was this last piece that you mentioned? Can you say a little bit more about that last uh, piece of legislation that you mentioned that um, to prevent the subversion of the vote? That feels really <laughs> pressing and important. Yes. So as we all know, during the last election, um, the electoral results in different districts were were challenged by local election boards, uh, by local election commissioners, by governors of, of certain states. And uh, Senator Warnock's standalone legislation, the Preventing Election Subversion Act, would increase the safeguards to ensure that voter voices are heard, that electoral representatives in certain counties wouldn't be able to just challenge those votes and strip strip those votes from their authority. It is. It feels like this is just foundational stuff of democracy. This isn't like special anything. This is actually just what democracy is supposed to look like. Uh, and, and yet we have to put it in there because there is an effort, I, I have to say, unfortunately, among some of our elected officials to, to limit access to the vote which is, it feels to me like a anti-democratic at, at its core, uh, you know, so, so this, this feels like really important and, and it's in concert with a broader moment where, you know, I, I really feel for people who are working in the polls, people who are, you know, you know, there, there's just a sense of like democracy under threat. And I, you know, and, and I feel like oh, traditionally Voices of diverse faith traditions have been very invested in making sure that democracy works. And so I, I, I feel like we're, you know, we're part of a, a, a you know, our, our coalition is broad and we work with people of all sorts of different faith traditions, as well as those who have um, beliefs that are not traditionally part of a faith tradition to really work to protect the ballot. And uh, there's going to be so much good work that is going to have to happen in order to make sure that every vote is heard. And, and I know that you, you're developing those, um, those, those opportunities for our collaboration. Are, how do you feel like people, our listeners can um, also participate in democracy um, coming out of their whatever uh, belief they have? So there are there are so many opportunities, and Paul, thank you for raising that. Um, we're just beginning to roll out what our what our strategy um, will be in terms of how can we engage folks. But certainly, there's advocacy. There's the there's this critical piece of legislation that we've just discussed, and I just want to flag quickly. You know, depending on where you live, what state you live in, you may take certain things for granted. Not every state has absentee voting, um, no excuse absentee voting. Not every state in, in allows early voting. Not every state allows uh, volunteers to bring water and food to people who are waiting in line to vote. I mean, these are these are um, necessities and, and things that we just um, take for granted in, in certain jurisdictions where we have those things. So I, I also just want to kind of educate our listeners and share that um, this is about equality. This is about equal access. Um, and so that's that's why this legislation is is so critical. Um, but, uh, you know, past past advocating for these election protections, there's real work that one can do on the ground. Um, you know, getting out the vote, helping to mobilize and educate voters all around the country 
working with various houses of worship to help encourage people to vote, educating folks on certain issues. What are the issues that you care about? What are the issues that get you out to vote on election day? Um, and, and really encouraging people to, to lift their voice and vote. Um, some people don't, right? I mean, we also take that for granted that you really need to urge people to get out the vote. Um, protecting the polls, uh, volunteering as a, as a poll worker or a poll chaplain, ensuring that voters are safe, that they're engaging and um, that that campaigns are engaging in legal legally uh, you know legal outreach at the polls there's just so much that we can do um, well and, and with with that it's like I, I remember some images of like people showing up with like guns at poll places that was just a pure intimidation tactic now I, I don't want to like don't get yourself, you know, involved in altercation like that. But it is like I think people are there. There is there is a side that is is invested in less people voting and, and right. invested in creating a fear around voting and around polling. And, you know, they, they would say, oh, we're protecting the poll. Well, no, you're not protecting. You're actually intimidating. Um, and so, like, you know, this is this is a real stuff. And I think what, one of the things that the reason we're we're so supportive of um, Senator Warnock's work is that, you know, this is this all of this, this feels foundational to the democratic process. And we want to, you know, we as a as an organization that is working on democracy and freedom of belief and freedom of of um, being able to live out our freedom of belief, uh, this this feels foundational. As long as I have you here, like, what are some other things that are like, you know, it, it's you're you work, you know, in in on Capitol Hill, you work like in Washington, D.C. And so, like, you know, it, it's also it takes a long time. It's coalition building. But what are some of the things that you're working on uh, that you're excited about that you think are really important that our listeners might uh, be able to learn about? Great. I'm so glad you asked. And of course, I'm I'm really excited about the Freedom to Vote Act and everything that goes hand in hand with with this legislative package. Um, you know, following Pride Month, we are very excited to be working on the Hill uh, to support passage of the Equality Act, um, which would guarantee full civil rights for the LGBTQ community, particularly following the attacks of of the 303 creative Supreme Court decision and the over 500 anti-trans and LGBTQ bills introduced on the state legislature level, our support for federal LGBTQ equality is more critical now than ever. We're actually convening a, a national coalition this week of faith-based organizations in support of this legislation because we have to get faith voices out there in support of LGBTQ equality. The narrative has been hijacked by folks on the religious right, and we really need to get faith voices out there saying that they are committed to full equality and inclusion and, and express support for the LGBTQ community. Um, I'm just excited about that coalition and I think there's a lot that we can do. Um, the other thing that I'll say is that the Senate and the House are, are wrapping up their work 
uh, for the summer, hopefully this week, and they'll be headed home to recess for the month of August. And this is a critically important time for you to meet with your member of Congress, arrange a district meeting, invite him or her to your house of worship or to your community center to learn about their priorities and share your priorities. It's a really key time for relationship building um, on both sides. And so I would encourage listeners to reach out to their member of Congress during this August and, and see if you can set up a meeting. Yeah, there's so many things that that we talk about here and that and that we are working across the country on, um, you know, the other things that I know you're working on and, and we will have you back soon. But, you know, the whole question about education and the attack on education, public education, the question of reproductive rights and, and how, you know, religious Actually, freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, um, it, it dovetails completely with the you know how you are able to to make decisions about your um, your reproductive rights. And so, there's lots of things that um, are in the works, and and I know you're doing so much. But um, today, you know, I just really pleased, you know, in, in concert, especially with our conversation with um, Representative Raskin and and his you know his vision and the important moment we're in in our democracy. It feels so important that people are aware of what's at stake in our democracy right now and why we need to step up um, and make sure that everyone has the right to vote. So again, what is the name of the the, the uh, Senator Warnock's uh, bill so that people can have it at the tip of their tongue when they go and talk to their senator? Sure. It is the Freedom to Vote Act. That is easy to remember and very clear. And so let's all get out there and... Um, and make sure that the Freedom to Vote Act is talked about, that if people are saying, oh, I don't support the freedom to vote, then you ask them, well, why? Like, <laughs> I mean, I actually think like everything you talked about, like, let's avoid subversion. Let's avoid voter suppression. Let's like if you're opposed to that, then why are you opposed to that? And how does that fit with the, the mandate to allow people to express themselves and express their deepest beliefs in, in coming together in our democracy. So uh, Darcy Hirsch, thank you so much for all of the work that you do and for, um, for all this great uh, conversation today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. We need your help keeping State of Belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us at Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be in conversation with scholar Andrew Whitehead. His ready-for-pre-order new book is titled American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.